morning, C4 Church. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say hey to everyone on Auditorium B, everyone watching, listening online, wherever you might be. We're glad you're here. Uh, Many of us who live in this area know that this last week we had quite a windstorm come through this area. And I remember I was sitting that night with my, uh, my wife. We were watching television, and the wind was howling. I love a good storm of any sort, wind or lightning. And, and so we were watching television, and uh, that was howling all around our house. We lived down by the lake. And suddenly I heard this thud, and I smiled at my wife, and he said, uh, who fell out of bed? You want to take bets? We're jaded parents, three children. Um, <laughs> And because uh, our kids, you ever found a kid, if you've been a parent or an aunt or an uncle, you ever walked into a room where a kid has fallen out of bed? It looks like sort of a homicide scene. They're just sort of laid all over, right? And they're still sleeping, one eye's open. Anyway, so I begin to do the, the, the work. I walk into one room, no, no, all tucked in bed. Number two, the usual suspect, it's Emma. No, she's in. Oh, must be Noah walked in three. No, nothing. Weird. Okay, back to the show. And uh, so we watched the end of the show, and then I said, oh, I got to, you know, go turn off one of our five Christmas trees downstairs. That's right. And uh, thank you very much. And um, what's your problem? Uh, so I went downstairs, and, uh, and I was going to start, you know, turning off the Christmas trees. And as I was walking in our family room, we have this small window. And we have a birch tree directly out in front there. And as I was looking at the birch tree, it looked very odd to me. It was like there was a, a hat around it. I couldn't describe it. it was, I was like, man, it must be the Christmas trees. I'm overwhelmed by joy. I'm hallucinating. And so I keep looking. And then I look closer and, and realize, as many of you saw on social media this week, I, I walked out and my 85 feet, linear feet of fence is gone it has fallen right down. It's actually leaning against a tree. So I'm out there in my pajamas. The sandbox is destroyed. My Noah's sandbox is done. And I'm walking back and forth seeing this huge. So it looks like I'm getting a new Christmas gift this year. A fence. Hooray. Um, uh, hooray, yeah. But I, I'm walking back and forth. And, and so the next day, we have the awkward conversation with a neighbor, right? You know, and he said, actually, I built this 30 years ago. And I went, oh, okay, great. Okay, Jesus, I love you. Um, Um, But it was interesting. I looked closely at the fence. And the fence, by the way, looked old, but it didn't look broken. It actually was a strong fence and a good fence. It was a little saggy, but not bad. But when you looked at the foundation, the foundation was completely gone. Though it was standing there and though my kids ran by that fence every single day, the foundation, the posts were rotted right out. And as the wind blew stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, the fence was revealed for what it truly is. See, that is a profound image for us in the season, this God season we are in as a church. 
Because we as a church have decided that this thing that's talked about in Scripture, kingdom come, we really not only intellectually believe it, we are asking God to evidence it. And so we are asking that the Father and the Son would keep sending the Spirit of God upon this church to test the quality of the people of this church to reveal what we truly are underneath the ground. And we are not afraid of this. This is not a judgment thing. We keep saying, Spirit of God, wind of heaven, fire of God, we continually, week after week, more and more of us keep wrestling with God. You keep coming, God, and you demonstrate, you show us who we really are. You show the quality of the fence called C4. You show the quality of the fence called my family or my spiritual life. We want to know from heaven's view what we really look like. Why? So we can feel condemned. Why? so we can feel shame? No, because when the Spirit of God blows stronger and stronger and knocks fences over, he builds better ones. And that's what we're here about in this church. We are asking God not to relent until truly we know where we are, where we've been, and where we're called to be. And we do not do it in unholy fear. Why? Because we know God is love. The Sermon on the Mount is the way that we are all being tested. The Sermon on the Mount is the very thing that is showing us the quality, the depth of our faith. It is showing us where we are, where we've been, and where we need to go. And as I've been saying week after week, this most famous teaching of Jesus, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God found in ordinary life. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after you've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and King. For Jesus, this whole message is an explicit outline of what a normal Christian life looks like. This is what authentic faith in Jesus produces over a lifetime. And let me repeat it again for this next time. If spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom grow and expand, and if spiritual practices and disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation as we walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics, it's the lifestyle of those who have truly truly already embraced and been involved in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is going to come close to us again today. The wind of heaven is going to roar in this place today and test something very close to every person sitting in this room, sitting in Auditorium B, and every person listening online. Jesus is now going to move the conversation. He's going to explicitly talk about how the kingdom of God is found, and he moves it now from human relationships to religious activity. He's about to say there are certain things that form the kingdom. They express the kingdom. They demonstrate the kingdom. They build the kingdom. They are evidence that the kingdom actually is among us. But it's right in that place. Everyone listen, please. It's in that very place where we are doing not just good things. We are doing holy, righteous things. God commanded things that Christians will be tested the most. Jesus is about to say in Matthew 6, you've got a Bible, you can turn there virtually, physically, we're good either way. Jesus is about to say, the greatest danger for us 
is actually when we try to connect with Jesus. The greatest test and challenge for us actually comes when we walk with Jesus and we walk with others and we do good things. It is right there that Christians are most, most vulnerable to the ancient sin that is found in Genesis 3, idolatry. It's right in the best place the worst thing comes out. See, what did Satan say to Eve? Do you not know that if you eat from the forbidden fruit, you will be like who? God. We can exalt ourselves and replace the creator. The created can say to the creator, I deserve worship. I have the right to be the center. I am the master of my destiny. And it is actually in these places where we're doing the right things, this sin, this insidious, wicked, spiritual cancer is found the most. See, we're commanded to do good works after we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. We never become Christians by what we do. We become Christians by grace and mercy, and then we do good works out of love. And actually, as we found out in the Sermon on the Mount, we're called to actually do them all publicly. They are signs that actually we're members of the kingdom of God. But it's in that place of holiness. It's in that place where the kingdom of God is coming more and more. It's right there that danger is found. This actually, shockingly, is where evil is closest to you. This is where the devil is going to try to seduce and speak the loudest to you. This is where your sinful heart is going to work the hardest to drag you back to what you used to be. This is where the world is going to try to seduce you back to the kingdom you've been saved out of. I love what Michael Horton wrote when he said these words. Listen, he said, we tend to regard sin as something that affects us when we are far away from God, like the prodigal son story. But sin is far more subtle and ingrained than that. It intrudes into the very highest and holiness, holiest of acts. Sin is crouching at the door of any church and any genuine follower of Jesus when you're doing the right thing. So Jesus walks into this church this morning. He's here. Do you know that? Jesus is here right now. Jesus, by his spirit, is standing in this room. He's standing in auditorium B. He's standing beside you right now on that go train. He is sitting beside you in that plane. Listen closely. Jesus, the Holy One of God, is now moving lovingly towards the church that he bought. And he chooses this morning to speak to the core of each one of us and says, let me have a conversation with you today about what you do for me and why. I want to talk to you about your heart. I want to talk to you about your motivation And I want to remind you, he would say if he was standing here even physically, but he says it by his spirit. He says, I want to remind the church this morning, I am the only one that sees things fully and clearly. So let me address this morning one of the greatest barriers to the request you are asking for. That is renewal, revival, and awakening. Let me speak to you out of deep love because you are my children. Let me tell you what has burdened my heavenly heart in every single generation of Christians in every place. My heart, Jesus would say, breaks in a church because of the amount of self-deception. What did the prophets say about the human condition? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
Our society teaches that we are born good and it is corrupted by society. We as Christians say no. We are born inclined towards evil and we corrupt society. Jeremiah cries out the heart, your heart, my heart, the mind, the will, the emotions that makes up you and myself. We are at our center, at our core. We are deceitful. So deceitful, we even get involved in self-deception. And this is the backdrop to what Jesus is about to say to people that deeply love him. I want to remind you again, the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, is given to those who already are followers of Jesus. When we do things for God, when we even think we're doing things for God, much of the time, we're not. Are we worshiping God by these acts or building up self-worth? Are we giving God the glory that is due his name or are we stealing his glory by making it about us? Are we seeking God's pleasure or the approval of others? It is about human love or God's love. See, Jesus now again comes and speaks to the core of our disciplined faith and calls much of it for what it is. He says much of it, it's self-worship, self-soothing, self-motivation, actually, much of what you think is done in my name is just self-talk. Hear the word of God this morning, Matthew 6, 1. If you wouldn't mind, could we just put the lights up a little so people could read their scriptures? Unless, of course, they're these and they're so bright I can see them all up here. Okay. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful, do not do your acts of righteousness before people uh, to be seen by them. Because if you, if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Be, what's the next word? Say it loud. No, that was weak. This is not a junior high class. Let's try that again. Be what? Jesus, who is God in flesh, says in this moment, take heed. This is unbelievably dangerous territory. This is like a dad coming to the child and say, don't put your hand in the campfire. But daddy, it's so beautiful. Don't do it. But it's so cool. Don't do it. I want to do it. Don't do it. Why? Because you're going to end up in the hospital. Don't do this. God, in this moment, even in this season, comes and says, see for who I love, who I have given promises to. Be unbelievably careful right now. Take heed Now notice what Jesus says. Not if you do, but when you do your righteousness, when you practice your faith, when you serve, when you do acts of righteousness, do not do them for yourself or others. If you do that, you'll get no reward from God. When we glimpse at beauty, one said, in the holiness, and we end up perverting the vision by the act of fantasizing and dreaming about a way that the action could actually benefit or exalt us, we lose everything in that moment. Again, let me be clear. Jesus expects us to be involved in prayer. Jesus expects us to be involved in sacrificial giving. Jesus expects us to fast and do all sorts of other things. This is what he expects us to be involved in for sure because we are part of the kingdom of God. But here's what Jesus says to us this morning. I have nothing to do with. My father is against 
any form of pseudo-piety because really it's just religious hypocrisy. It is play-acting. It is self-worship. It is taking God's name in vain. It is actually making an agreement with the ancient snake in Genesis 3. And what is the result? If you choose to do things for God, but your motive is to get pleasure from others or yourself, you have already received your reward in full. The temporal thanks of a fickle crowd or yourself, which will be forgotten. Oh, let me make this clear this morning. You will be forgotten. I will be forgotten. Everything that people say to you will be, not, will be forgotten. But God will not forget anything. But since we choose much of the time to get pleasure from others, that's our reward. And you get nothing else. God's pleasure lasts for eternity. But the small bump you got for your self-worth or better PR among family or friends, that's all you get. The heart is wicked that we as Christians would choose acts of worship, acts of serving, uh, spiritual practices, and in the end point them back to us is so unbelievably dangerous. Jesus starts with giving in verse 2. So when you give to the needy, Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by all people. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now there's an expectation, you see it. There's an expectation that followers of Jesus will be giving and sacrificial giving, the kingdom that really comes into you. You'll be involved in these good actions and they're not wrong. And actually, genuicity, if that's really a word, is expressed in giving. Now the Jews of the day knew that giving was a sacred act. Actually, the word giving, much of the time in their language, was the word sacrifice. It was equated to giving at the temple. Listen to the word of God in Deuteronomy 15.7. If anyone's poor among your fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Jesus says, okay, I don't want you to be a religious hypocrite. Do not use God's name in vain. Do not lie when you're doing his work. Now, as many of you might know, the word hypocrite has a really good history. It used to be a good word. Hypocrite first meant grand orator, someone who could stand up and give grand speeches, oration, and move crowds. Hypocrite. Later, it was used for Greek actors who would carry multiple masks and they'd play multiple roles on the stage and they would show you that they were changing their character by just simply putting a different mask on. Hypocrite. They're combined together, one who is a great order and great actor who can take on many roles. And now Jesus comes along and he basically says... Do you not, or do not wear a mask, do not make big pronouncements as if your words or actions or motives are really for God and they're actually for you. Now, don't miss the power and the offense of this this morning. Jesus is sitting somewhere by the Sea of Galilee. He's sitting on a hill. Hundreds or thousands of people are present. Thousands of good Orthodox Jews who regularly do everything he's talking about because he's addressing in, in this context, the three big things for Judaism, giving, prayer, and fasting. And he's looking at the pastors. He's looking at the people like me of his day, the Pharisees. And as he's teaching this, he's looking in their eyes and he's saying, I know what you're all doing. And I know on the outside, the fence looks great. 
But I'm about to tell you, much of the fence is rotten. And as I speak these words, the fence is going to fall down. I am telling you, much of what you do is absolutely right. Your motives are wrong. It has nothing to do with my father's kingdom. So he says, many of you are play acting before God. Now he uses an interesting experience. He talks about trumpets, right? He says like trumpets. Uh, Don't announce it with trumpets. So it's interesting. Where does that come from? Well, here's what happens. Jesus says in the scriptures that when you're getting the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. You go, well, is that metaphorical or literal? Well, it's, it's both, actually. Uh, metaphorically, it's like this. Behold, I am giving. Do you see how much I'm giving? Do you hear the pennies dropping? Behold, right? We can do that through our body our actions, our, our, our words, our, our mind, but also it's literal. See, what would happen in the day, which is, again, really quite significant, is this, that the trumpets would be sounded in the temple when there was an actual issue. And so people would actually go, and they would actually have to give at the temple to deal with a need. So this is what Jesus is confronting. It'd be like someone saying, oh, look how I'm closing my shop for God. The trumpets are blowing I'm running to the temple. Do you see how much I'm sweating for God? Oh, it's so. Look how I give of my time, my money. How look how much I, I love God. Thoughts like, why aren't you closing your shop as quick as I'm showing mine? I, I'm running faster than you. What's your problem? I'm taking a goat, and you're only taking some doves. I mean, God must love me so much more. I'm so proud of myself. See, Jesus, for him, giving is not enough. Generosity is not enough. The true measure of the heart is motives. Jesus has said that murder and adultery were issues of the heart, so all good acts of righteousness actually have to do with the heart. Let me bring this home for us today. Would we have to close much of this church down if you didn't get tax receipts anymore when you gave here? No, really. Like lots of countries actually don't give tax receipts to churches. I mean, imagine tomorrow the government announced, you know what? No, churches aren't nonprofit anymore. Would we have to close the building? Would we have to fire staff? Would we have to shut down future sites? See, Jesus would come along and say, oh, tax receipts are fine. It's a great bonus. Please give up till December 31st. Yeah, right, okay, right? Like, fine. But if you are giving only to get a tax receipt, you have received your reward in full, period. On judgment day, when you go to give your gifts to God, God will say, I don't see any. If your motive is to give to God and the tax receipt is a bonus, two for one special. See, this drives home the point. Why are we doing what we're doing? Jesus' audience on that day were good, religious, kind people, just like us. But they had talked themselves into believing that they were doing all of this in God-honoring boundaries, and they were giving to the needy. And so Jesus is saying, but when you do it to promote yourself, when you do it for anything other than worship, right there, right there, you've received your reward in full, you've been given your wages, your receipt is full, nothing further is due you at all. Let that sit in. Let that heaven-given statement come close to your heart today. See, if you want transformation, if you want deep works of God in our church, then we must address motives, not just actions. 
Spurgeon said it like this, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand is the posture of hypocrisy. So Jesus has said, and he's going to say this this morning, so when you fast, or when you serve, or when you give money to God, or when you pray, or when you preach, or when you lead worship, or when you prayed for healing, or when you led that connect group, or when you taught that course, or or when you ushered this morning, or, or when you worked with that student, or when you dealt with evil directly, when you did anything for God, when you did any spiritual practice, when you used any spiritual gift, why did you do what you did? Did you do it to feel better about yourself? Did you do it so people would finally respect you or like you or follow you? Did you do that thing in God's name? Did you do it out of duty? Did you actually do it to deal with the deep insecurity you've had since childhood and you haven't worked out yet? Did you do it so people would agree with your point of view? Did you do it just maybe to feel again for the first time? Did you do that good thing actually to get back at somebody? And when you did it, were you saying, look at me, everyone? Were you saying it with your words or, or, or your eyes? Or we know, right, 90% of communication is what? Right. How do you do it and why? Or even more subtle, did you say to yourself, oh, well done? Well done. I congratulate me. See what I'm doing for God, how tough it is, how much I'm, I'm doing. And all these other people, they don't know, but I know how marked I am. Am. Then, Jesus says, right there you've received your reward in full. It's been given to you. You got what you wanted. Maybe people's respect or approval or self-gratification or, or self-worth. Or, but it's all from the wrong source. Yeah, you got elevation in the community or you were respected more in your family, but you got what you wanted. The look, the love, the security, the identity boost, but it will have no eternal reward. It's been lost already and you can never get it back ever again. The Father who is present, who sees all, who knows all, who is the foundation of the kingdom, he will remember though, and he will reward anything truly done for his kingdom. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, said this, Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. Jesus says the answer when giving is simply this, but when you give to the needy, do not, not, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Is Jesus saying here you can never give in public? That we can't actually talk about money? It's an interesting problem in this church. We want to talk about sex and everything else, but not money. This gets everyone riled around here. So what is this saying? Does this mean like all giving has to be done in great secrecy? No. Remember what Jesus is driving at. His issue is not about the public or private. His issue is why are you doing what you are doing? This is what he said in Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's the context. Actually, when God moves in a local church and giving becomes more generous, actually, we need more people to stand up and start saying, look what I'm doing to give praise to God and to inspire the community. There are multiple stories in the Bible where people publicly demonstrate generosity by giving. In one of the great revival moments in history, Acts chapter 4, let me read it to you. All the believers, verse 32, had one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his or her own. They shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them from time to time. Those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I love this. Did, did Barnabas just break the Sermon on the Mount? Because, by the way, when you gave land to the apostles, it was done in a church service. It'd be like someone standing up and saying, I've got a farm in Uxbridge, praise God. I've sold it, and I'm bringing the money to, to John and Dave and the elders right here at the front. How very un-Canadian, right? Okay. So is this wrong? No. It was done in public. It was done with right motive, and it actually inspired the community. We see this man's name, how much was given. We see everything. And 2,000 years later, sitting in a country Barnabas didn't know existed, we're talking about it. We actually need more stories and more testimonies of all sorts to build faith and to inspire people to see this theme become true. But here's Jesus' point. When you give, very publicly or very privately, do it for God. Do it for His kingdom, not for you and your kingdom. No saying, attention everyone, big giver here this morning. God says, follow through, do it, walk away. Verse 4, then the father who sees what is done in secret, oh, he'll reward you. I love what one pastor said when he wrote these words. What are some signs that maybe we need to back off and get more private with our giving in the opposite? The first sign of a person having a motivation problem is grumbling when his or her actions aren't noticed and congratulated. See, right there at that moment, you know that you weren't really giving to God. You were looking for someone else's congratulation. The second sign is envy and jealousy when other people gain credit and you don't. Well, I gave more than them. How come they're getting the conversation? A third sign is irritation or volatile emotions when one doesn't get one's wishes, such as the choice of a pastor in spite of how much they've been giving to that church. Well, I don't agree with where you're going, so I'm going to withhold my... Who are you giving to? A fourth sign of mismanaged motivation is counting heads or numbers when one is asked to do a religious deed like teaching a Sunday school class. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't uh, do uh, music unless it's on the main stage. Oh, I know, I don't do a connect class unless there's at least 30 people in it. No, no, I only do connect groups if there's 14 to 20. You know who I am, right? Jesus comes and he says, is this you? Jesus turns to prayer next. He says, and notice it, and not if, but when you pray. Now, don't be like hypocrites. Don't be the play actor. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by all people. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. Now, it's interesting. Synagogues, just like modern churches today, are, are led by people. Did Lori just sin in our room? Did Gary just sin in auditorium B by praying for us? Like, sorry, Lori, you're fired. It's done, right? It's right. Like, is that what it means? No. This is talking about motive. Every synagogue leader, every pastor and leader led the people. Jesus' point is, when you were publicly leading, why did you just do what you did? He's also confronting those who were very strategic about their prayer. See, there was at least three calls to prayer in Jerusalem every day. The critical one is at noon. A very similar experience to what we see in the Muslim faith, where people stop and pray. And Jesus is confronting those with a plan. So here's what they do. 
They would make sure that two minutes or one minute before noon, they happened, they just, they just happened to be in the most public place. And so as they're walking, suddenly the, the, the call to prayer, oh, I, you know, God demands this of me. I, it's not my fault I'm in front of all you praying. I just, you know, it's what he wants. Oh, God, right? And Jesus comes and says, so why are you invoking the name of God himself? Are you doing it to be an actor or are you truly worshiping and crying out to the God who can make a difference? Not only must our prayers actually be filled with right motives, they need to be filled with right content. In Luke 18, 11, one Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, we're shocked that he would have the guts to say out loud what most of us believe in our hearts. And yet, this guy really believed he was in the right. The sad thing is God never heard that prayer. Jesus says the answer and the antidote to the temptation of horrific idolatry, verse 6, is, but when you pray, you go into your room and close the door and pray to the Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Now, it's interesting, in this time of history, almost every home had a storeroom. Many scholars uh, believe that it was the only room in the house that locked. We all have homes that lock everything. That culture, one room. And he says, you go to the windowless room, you go to the pantry, basically, and you lock the door, and that's the place where you pray, and God will reward you. Now, is this saying that all prayer, if it's not done in your pantry, is a sin, and God doesn't hear it? No. Jesus is again talking about one thing. Why are you doing what you're doing? He says, go to the place that is secret. I love how the New Jerusalem Bible translates this. But when you pray, you go to your private room, you shut yourself in, and so pray to your Father who is in that secret place. God will always, always, always be found in a place, public or private, where the motives of the person praying are God-centered. God will, I guarantee you, is there every single time. And the storeroom can be on the stage. The storeroom can be in a Starbucks. The storeroom can literally be a storeroom. Wherever you invoke God's place, you go to the secret place, which is bound by your motives, and you say, I want to meet with you, not others. John Calvin wrote, the theater of God is in the hidden courts. Or William Carey, the famed missionary, said, Secret, fervent, believing prayer lies at the front of all personal godliness. It's not wrong to pray in public or do public prayers. Why do you do them? Listen to a different pastor who said this to his church. We will comprehend Jesus' point better if we ask ourselves these questions this morning. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? If the answers are not enthusiastic affirmations, we fail the test and fall under Jesus' condemnation. We are hypocrites. Could it be that the prime reason why so many answers of prayer are not found is because we are less concerned with bringing our requests to God and actually more concerned of showing them off to men? Jesus says, when you pray, as a good Jew, he's saying to that community, you do this. But then he wasn't done. He actually turned to the rest of the Roman Empire and he says, oh, by the way, if you're part of my kingdom, let me just help you with one other thing. But when you pray... 
Don't, don't keep on babbling like pagans for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. No, don't be like them for your, your father knows what you need before you ask him. In Greek and Roman faith, this is what people would do. They would uh, have a pantheon of gods and they would list them all. So they would literally say all the names of the gods they were about to worship or pray to. And then with each god, they would repeat the prayer request that they wanted. And if they thought that one of the gods would be more favorable, they would repeat that prayer request multiple times to that one deity, hoping they'd get a better chance. It's sort of like the lottery, uh, religiously. And Jesus says, um, just so you know, if you're part of the kingdom, you don't need to do that anymore, right? Like, that's not what we do over in our family. That we have different family rules. He says, you know, why don't you just tell him? Because he actually knows what you need. He says, I, I, I want holy prayers. I want God-centered prayers. I want prayers asking for healing and holiness and hope. We are not a movement motivated by exhibition. May your prayers, no matter what form they take, be godly. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and say what really irks me in churches like ours is that people use this verse to dismiss liturgical worship. People say, oh, see, those people in those churches, you ever done this before? Though, oh, Lord, thank you for letting me be in this church and not that church. Okay, different conversation. Anyway, um, they have prayer books in their pre-written prayer. See, oh, that's, that's vain repetition. No, it's not. Some of the best prayers that you should learn how to pray are found in Anglican prayer books. Thousands of years of work have been done out of the scriptures to pray. Here's the point. Whether you read a prayer from a prayer book or it was said by your grandmother or you sing it out loud or you break out in tongues, no matter what your expression, free-flowing or liturgical is, make sure the reason why you're praying is because you want to encounter God and see his kingdom come on earth. I don't care if it's formal or unformal. God says, I want to know what your heart is for you, your family, the world, and for me. Jesus says these words to us. His best friend John put it this way in 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, oh, he'll hear us. Oh, so that means if we pray things outside of his will, he what? Doesn't hear us? This is why. Though he is merciful and he covers our prayers, I'm sure the Holy Spirit regularly reorients our prayers so we get it right. But let me say this. Do you see this? When we pray things that are according to his will, if you are praying publicly or privately and it's about you or someone else and not him, he gets deaf about that stuff because it's really not about his kingdom. Why do we do what we do? Is it possible to worship, preach, serve kids, give, serve the poor, and have no lasting effect? Yes. When I got ordained in this church, it was interesting. I asked my friend John McCulley to come preach, the CEO of Muskoka Woods. Good friend of mine. We're very close. Uh, we disagree on all sorts of things. That's why we love Jesus together. But I asked him to come preach, and he said, I remember he got up and he said, You know what? There are a few passages you always preach at ordinations. He said, but you know, I've really prayed and thought about it, and actually I'm going to preach out of a passage that no one does, but she probably preached at every ordination. He said, it's usually done at weddings. He said, John, listen closely to my words. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast and do not have love, I, what? Gain nothing. He said, John, what are you going to do with your life and why? This is the repeat of Jesus' teaching. I love what Scott McKnight said, summarizing this part of Jesus' teaching. He says this, God the Father directly engages with you. And you are to engage with him directly. God the Father knows everything you're doing. There's nothing hidden. God the Father is the judge. Humans aren't the judge. So do your acts of righteousness before God, not before others. Do these acts to be approved by God, not by humans. Jesus calls you, calls us, C4, not to be exhibitionists motivated by personal approval or other people's approval. The only thing that lasts is divine approval. And Jesus asks C4 in this moment, what is your motivation? What is your inspiration? What drives you? What is your incentive? What is the driving force? What is the impulse? Is it to truly worship God or is it self-invented worth? Is it I want to be famous or I want to be faithful? God's real presence, this is what I desire and long for or my own pride? See, much of our self-worship comes from wanting to be loved, to be attached or cared for. Yet when we turn to ourselves or others, it never satisfies. So Jesus comes and says, oh, please understand, church. I'm deeply pleased by you. I love you. So glad that you gather in my name. I'm so glad you exalt my Father. I'm so glad you continually invite the Spirit among you. I am pleased. And I expect you to be generous people. Actually, he'd probably say, we need to work on our giving in our church. And yes, I expect prayer in my communities. And I expect fasting in my communities. And I expect all the spiritual disciplines. Why? Because as we said in the summer, spiritual disciplines put you in the place to encounter the king, to be transformed. All of these things are good. But then he comes and says, don't you know? Don't you know my heartbeat for you? I don't want any of you to lose reward. You keep giving too much away. You keep giving away freedom and the pleasure of the only one who can make you fully human for small, petty, useful, useless things that disappear. Don't you know what I want to do among you? I want you to be people who know the love and pleasure and reward of God who is our dad in heaven. So what do we do? As we come, interestingly, at one of the high points of the Christian calendar. And as we keep praying, oh Lord God, do anything you must in me for your glory and my freedom so the world will see Jesus. As we ask, here's what Jesus through his spirit says. Or maybe here's what we need to say to him. First thing, would you free me from myself? I can flee from the devil and I can flee from the world, but I'm still stuck with me, right? Maybe we should put it a different way. I don't want to run from me, but I really would like you to change me. Here's a prayer I've prayed and I want to share it with you, and it's done out of right motive. Since 2011, I've kept asking God for this. I keep saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, please hear me. I want a vision of you. I want a vision of you. I want your presence. I want your Bible, your word, to be so much more intoxicating, seducing, alluring to me 
than anything else or anyone else. Whether I'm famous or not, whether I write books or not, no, no. What I want is this. I want what Jesus had, where Jesus in the midst of chaos had such profound shalom peace because he knew that the pleasure of God the Father was better than anything else I could bribe, get, or promote. And I use these words, intoxicating and seduction, because I don't have the words. And I keep begging God, I'm, I'm 39, please, please, at 80, I don't want to be jaded. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to hate the next generation in the church. I want to be satisfied with you and no one else. The cry for a church that asks for this and hears Jesus' plain speak to us is this, Oh Lord, transform me so when I pray and when I fast and when I give, I am just good with your pleasure, whether I get any credit or no credit. Your credit is more beautiful and intoxicating than all that. You say, what's the take home? Literally go home and say, Lord, change me. Here's another thing. Maybe would you have the courage this week to ask Jesus if he's actually pleased with your works? Like you want an assignment for you who are really practical? Get a piece of paper this week and write out everything you do for God. I mean everything. I'm a student. I, I'm, I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm an aunt. I, I do this for my job. Because we do everything for the Lord, right? I, I, my spiritual gifts are this, this, and this. This is how much I give you. Like, get a... Discipline yourself. Sit, write out everything you do for the Lord. And then put this in front of him. Literally lay it in front of him in a devotional time and say to him, okay, what's the quality of the fence? And I'm, I'm okay because I know you're good. But just, just tell me, are you pleased? Is it for you? Is there anything that actually we need to talk about? Oh, Holy Spirit, Blow hard, blow strong, test it, because I don't want to be found with nothing in the end. When you do this activity, this spiritual act, at the end of it, would you maybe then give each one of those back to the Lord, literally, systematically? I give you back my preaching. I give you back my fathering. I give you back my job. Oh, I, I, I want to please you. And I end with this. Everyone ready? God loves you. And he wants to reward our church. Not with BMWs and bigger homes. Leave that to the crazy preachers somewhere else. God wants to reward us with peace and presence and love that surpasses anything you could buy in this season. And when we sincerely, whether it is ever known or not, do things unto the Lord, his promise is he will reward us in the now. And when we face the uncreated one on judgment day, oh, how he will reward us. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote these words, and I end with them as the band comes up here and in Auditorium B. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he said, indeed, if we consider the unblemished promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that Jesus, our Lord, finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies and sitting in a slum because he cannot in his mind imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far, far too easily pleased. Jesus comes this morning and he comes to us and he's not angry. He's actually very, very filled with holy love this morning. But what he wants is this. He wants there to be a sweeping, a sweeping purity in our church so no more reward gets lost anymore. God is coming this day to challenge us to build a new fence so actually we could give God glory, find freedom, and others will know that there are no play actors in this church. Would you pray as we prepare to respond? Lord, thank you that you call us to your kingdom. Thank you that you call us to be involved in giving and prayer and fasting. Thank you that you call us to use gifts and disciplines. And thank you we get to demonstrate counterculturally to the world that there is difference. But my prayer, my, my cry for me, my cry for my family is that you, Lord, would come so close that nothing would be lost anymore in this church, that all service would be done for the pleasure of God, and that you would convict who needs to be convicted, set free other people, but like, Lord, like, come. Set this church free in its giving. Set this church free in its praying. Set this church free in its fasting. Set, set this church free in all we do. Cleanse our motives. Purify our hearts. Make this R word revival real like this. And Lord, I pray, lastly, great reward. You know what every person needs. I don't. Reward. Reward us as a good dad. A good daddy, come and give us great gifts as we give them to you. Holy Spirit, we continually invite you to come and test the quality of our fence and build in us deeper foundations than this church has ever had. In the name of God the Father, who before the beginning of time decided because he loves you to call you. In the name of Jesus the Son, who died for you, thought of you when he died, rose from the dead, and prays for you at this moment. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us, makes us like Christ, gives us hope for the resurrection, and allows us to be convicted so we can be changed. To him and him alone be all the praise and glory in this church. Amen. Amen, amen. Let us stand and let us end by genuinely, boisterously singing to the God with pure motive that we love.